Unlock the past and safeguard your memories with ScanMyPhotos.com. Here's our special promo code, GoDigital, to get a whopping up to 50% off your photo scanning order. Don't let your cherished moments fade away. Digitize them now with precision and care. Whether it's old slides, photos, or films, bring them into the digital age and relive those precious memories. This is an affiliate promotion, meaning we may earn a commission if you take advantage of this fantastic deal. Act fast, preserve your history, and save big with Go Digital at ScanMyPhotos.com. Hi, I'm Maureen Taylor, the photo detective. I really love family photographs, all of them, from the mystery images you find in shoeboxes and albums to the pictures you snap with your digital devices. No mystery is too small. A simple question about an image can lead to new stories of your ancestors. This means you can count on me to help you identify the people in them, offer solutions for preserving and organizing them, and yes, even guide you in the various ways to gather and share picture stories with your relatives. There is so much confusion about which photos depict mourning and which ones don't, and don't even get me started on post-mortem images. So I thought it was time to have someone other than me weigh in on the controversy. My guest posted something on Twitter about mourning dress, and it went somewhat viral. I'm so glad she said yes to be a guest on the podcast. Kate Kierstead is an antique dealer who specializes in Victoriana with a focus on the sentimental, devotional, and unusual. She lives in the greater Boston area where she consumes a steady diet of books, movies, music, and art, and fusses over clothes. And as I know from Twitter, she's good at wisecracks, too. My guest today is Kate Kierstead of Roses and Rue Antiques. And Kate, I want to thank you for joining me on the Photo Detective Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you popped to the top of my list when I saw you on social media and I'm trying to remember if it was Instagram or Twitter where you were talking about Victorian morning clothes and sort of took on a pretty big exhibit. (laughs) Yeah the funny thing is that I've primarily been using Twitter just as um, a time waster for like the past 10 years and one day I just started ranting about Victorian morning clothes and I guess people found it interesting which was very cool. But what prompted this was that last year, H&M put together a fall capsule collection of recycled polyester dresses. They're trying to be more ecologically conscious, which is noble, but uh, unfortunately the dresses in question uh, did not meet expectation. I bought, I think, three or four of these dresses, which did kind of have a Victorian or Edwardian morning vibe. There was like a lot of black lace and stuff like that. So these dresses ended up being quite a disappointment. Uh, The quality was not great. One of them sounded exactly like a windbreaker. So not great. 
but it sort of became a meme like who is buying these victorian morning dresses at h&m so i thought why don't we talk about what these clothes actually did look like and what was appropriate to wear and what wasn't and people responded really well to it which is really cool yeah and i it's i spotted it somehow you came up and i wasn't following you at the time and i thought this is an interesting conversation. I need to sort of listen in and see what, what people are saying. But let's talk about you for just a, a second or two about like what it is that you do and how you got started with all of this. Well, I'm an antiques dealer and I specialize in 19th century decorative objects. I particularly like items that are sentimental, like keepsakes. So that can include everything from folk art to love tokens, to marriage souvenirs, to morning paraphernalia. I also really like devotional items, particularly Catholic items and books and ephemera and any kind of unusual decorative smalls. So that is my specialism. And both of my parents were actually antique dealers. So I like to say that this runs in families, like insanity. It does. It, you have it to does. be a little bit, you have to be a little bit nuts to do this. It's an insane way to make a living. And I think a lot of us are square pegs in one way or the other. But it's um, not I, unusual. The story that you told is not unusual, especially in the photo world. There's a lot yeah. of sort of generational photo dealers. Yes, I've, I've noticed that. I do like antique photography quite a bit, although my own personal collection of it is quite small. The things that I like are prohibitively expensive or rare or unusual. And I would rather have those special pieces than have a million and one common photos around. That's just me personally. But I also have like a, a photo bucket list. Like I would love to have a, a true Julia Margaret Cameron someday that would be like my ultimate i'd like a french daguerreotype oh any particular subject matter no i saw one once at a conference and it was just way out of reach uh, i don't know what it is about france but they seem to be consistently operating on a higher plane decoratively speaking than other countries even like a pastry box that you go and you get from lottery is so beautiful this box that you just like empty and throw away it's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I wanna ask you about some things that have come through your hands as an antique dealer, but then I wanna talk again, go back to the Victorian morning because it's so fascinating to so many people. It's like the post-mortem images. Everybody thinks they have a post-mortem image and we all know that that's not really true. It is so, very tiresome. It's very, very tiresome. tiresome. <laughs> it's very tiresome. I would like to know, cause you also deal in oddities, right? Well, I sort of bristle at that word, but the oddities thing, what had happened was there had been a store in Manhattan called Obscura Antiques and Oddities, and it had had a tremendous following for well over a decade. And in the late 2000s, they got a reality show. And there had always been an interest in the antiques community and things that were unusual or strange or bizarre or macabre, but they sort of put that area of collecting on the map. That would be Mike Zone and Evan Michelson. It was their shop. So initially 
it was this wonderful thing because the popularity of the show united all of these people around the world who had been interested in things that are a little bit strange, right? And suddenly people were talking to each other, people were initiating their own businesses, but it sort of turned into this other thing within the past 10 years ago, uh, 10 years or so. So if you go to like an oddities show, for example, you'll see mostly people trying to replicate Mike and Evan's aesthetic with newer, lower end, common things that they perceive to be creepy or weird or whatever and a lot of crafts so people will do things with like freeze-dried ducklings from China and putting them in little uh, glass coffins or you know things like that and if that's what makes you happy god bless you more power to you but I just want to see the antiques and I've noticed that over the years oddities the word means less and less true antiques and that's I think so. All I think that I'm, that's all that I'm really here for, you know? So I would rather be known as an antiques dealer who has a strong background in cultural history and a good eye rather than an oddities dealer because so, I, I'm not seeing antiques in that world anymore, which is unfortunate. Black has been my favorite color since I was in the fourth grade. Morning items are just a few of the things that I happen to love. Now, I also love crazy polyester dresses from the 70s and like Studio 54 and Funkadelic and things that are very different from this. Mm -hmm. So I try to curate by choosing things that I find are beautiful and maybe incidentally they're creepy to other people. Like the morning items in particular, I think that they're just beautiful tokens of love and they're so poignant. I really love objects that speak and have a story and make you feel connected to these people that lived over a hundred years ago. So obviously morning items are going to resonate in that way. So I've been on your website and following you on Instagram to see the items that come through your antique shop. And they're quite beautiful. You really do have quite the eye. I mean, these things are all individually lovely. And the morning pieces, some people may find them sort of creepy, but I think you're right again, that these are a symbol of someone's love for someone else who's now gone. And this sort of morning thing resonates with us today. Your parents were antique dealers, but at what point did you realize that this is something that you wanted to do? Was there an item that they showed you that triggered an interest? I mean, is this something that you did when you thought you might do when you were a kid? Like this is some, something that you were interest, always interested in? I don't think I took an active interest in antiques until I was in my late teens and I was in high school. And around that time I had discovered Oscar Wilde and he very quickly became my hero. He still is my hero. And I think that I became interested in collecting 19th century objects because I wanted to put myself more in his world and to feel more connected to him. And when I landed on obscure antiques and oddities, specifically Evan Michelson and her curation, I'd just seen photos of her house on a blog in like 2005 or 2006. It never really occurred to me that you could express yourself that way aesthetically through antiques. Because before that, antiques had just been my parents' thing, and I wasn't really 
interested in it, even though, you know, I grew up in a house full of, you know, early American pie safes and we had multiple spinning wheels and, you know, antique crockery and antique spoons in the kitchen. It, it was like very much part of the background of my world that I grew up in, but I just sort of knew it as my parents' taste. And my mom likes early Americana primitives, colonial era stuff. And I'm a little bit more interested in very extravagant things from the mid to late 19th century. We do crossover in the folk art area and things like books. We have some overlap there. Um, but it, it was just as soon as I discovered Obscura Antiques and Oddities that it sort of opened a door for me to consider these other things. And that changed the way that I shopped when my mom took me to flea markets and antique stores and stuff. Finally, I started buying for myself. And when I started this, it was mainly just a side hustle. And I hoped very much as the years went on that I would be able to parlay that into a full-time business because I love doing this. And that's what everyone wants, right? To have a job that they truly love that really makes them happy. So exactly. it took a while, it took a while to get there. But this is, I think my, I'm coming up on my second year of running the business completely full time, which has been an absolute blessing during the circumstances that we find ourselves in. I did not want to do this initially. When I was in college, I studied dramaturgy and a dramaturg is sort of like a, a scholar of the theater and they can have multiple different functions depending on how they're needed uh, by the theater company. Sometimes they edit and uh, workshop a new play with a playwright. Sometimes they're in charge of choosing the plays that are going to be on the company season. And sometimes they work with a production doing something historical, like say the Crucible, and they educate the company on the world of the play. So you're sort of like an advocate for the playwright and you're the person who explains like the background of the witch trials, what life was like in Puritan New England? What was it like to be female in Puritan New England? What did people's religious practices look like and how were those central to the lives of the people in this play? Why did Arthur Miller write this play? How does it connect with what we're experiencing in the culture now? So I would say that the um, overall interest in cultural history and things like decorative arts and aesthetics, that all, parlays into what I do as a curator and a dealer, because I have all of that in my head at any given time. And I'm just like a deeply curious person. So sometimes I'll buy things. I have no idea what it is. I'm just curious. And then I'll go home and I'll research the thing and I'll learn. Well, I mean, I see things in the background of old photographs and you, and it's a question like, well, what is it? Because we forget, like if I was telling someone today, if we took a picture of our living room today and a hundred years from now someone looks at that picture they might not know what everything is that's in that photograph so we lose pieces of our cultural history we don't need them we discard them but they remain in things that are collectible and sold by antique dealers and investigated by those of us that see it and are curious so in keeping with that can you think of something before we get back to morning dress, which I really want to talk about? Can you think of something that has passed through your hands that was so unusual that you were like, what is this thing? And then how did you figure it out? 
Well, when I was a very new dealer, I came across something in an online auction. It turned out to be a sweetheart pin cushion. And these were common in the 19th century, but particularly they were common in like around the time of World War I and kits to make these things out of fabric and sawdust and pins were given to soldiers as they were convalescing and they were sent home to families. So I had never heard of these before, but I was just struck by how beautiful this particular thing was. I, hearts are some of my favorite motifs, as you might expect of a very sentimental person. So when I researched it, I realized that the one that I had was actually quite an unusual example. It was about two thirds as large as the usual Victorian example. There was a photograph on the back of the soldier. He was living in England, but he was Japanese, which is unusual. And just the extent of the detail on this was so extraordinary. You could not have fit one more pin or one more bead on this. And the work was so meticulous. And I only really realized after I had sold the thing to a dealer who was much more advanced than me and told me it was the best one that he'd ever seen. <laughs> then I realized that I had sold something that I'm probably not going to see the likes of again, at least not that quality. But that was an exciting moment for me as a new dealer because it was evidence that I could trust my eye, even if I didn't necessarily have the historical know-how about that area of collecting to move forward. Yeah, trusting your gut is important. And your well, eye. trusting your eye. Yeah. Trusting your eye, what you see, how what what make what draws you to it. I guess you develop that over time. But let's go back to Victorian morning. And I will just say that every time I see on eBay a Victorian bride in mourning, I want to scream. How would you know? Like how would how are these people assessing that these brides are in mourning? You know? In the photograph, it appears they're wearing a dark colored dress. But but how do you know what color the dress was? Well, you, you don't do, you don't really know what color the dress was. And there were dark dark colors that were popular, not just for mourning. Yes. Well, a lot of people don't realize as well that the fashion for a white wedding dress is something that emerged at the tail end of the 19th century. Queen Victoria started the trend because of course she did, but it didn't really catch on and become de rigueur until much, much later, much, like much later. Out, outside the 19th century altogether. So what most women did was not to wear a white wedding dress, but to wear what was simply their best dress. And depending on her finances, that could look like something that to our eye maybe is dowdy or unexciting or not resplendent enough for the occasion. But you can't really judge, you can't look at a photo like a, an old albumin print from the 1870s and say, well, that woman's clearly wearing black, if you really have no other evidence to suggest that. But if you wanted to say that the bride was in mourning, you would look for crepe, that would be really your first indicator, especially if she was supposed to be in deep mourning, or she was mourning for someone very close to her, like her father. Mm -hmm. And she would certainly have a crepe veil on, and her dress there would be crepe someplace on it. And it's very distinctive because they stiffened it with all kinds of glues and gums. It has like a ribbed texture. It's kind of crunchy to the touch. Very unpleasant thing to have next to your face. I wouldn't want to 
wear a veil of this, that's for sure. Uh, but it's very distinctive when you see it. And they pretty much did not wear this fabric or trim outside of mm -hmm. the confines of mourning. It was chosen because it doesn't shine or gleam at all like a satin or a silk might. Is the color. So what do people misunderstand the most about mourning dress? Well, mostly people think that all clothes that from this era that were black must have been for mourning. And that's something that's very difficult for a contemporary dealer or curator to prove. The best that you can really do is to assess the details of the garment and the fabric that it's made of, and then decide what stage of mourning, if any, it would be appropriate for. Because then as now, people wore black a lot simply because it looks good. It's fashionable and it's fun. But then you might wear it for an evening dress. Yes, you might. But if you're seeing something that's highly, highly ornamental with a ton of bead trim that glitters or a lot of lace or a lot of flounces and tucks, that's something that would not have been permitted in deep mourning when everything had to be very plain. And the fabrics were very different also. Like bombazine, it was used frequently in mourning. It's a silk and wool blend and it's very heavy and kind of uncomfortable. It doesn't move well. So it's not the kind of thing, particularly a young woman might relish wearing out in public. You know, it's not, not like a fun dress to wear back then. So do you own mourning dresses? I don't. I, I don't really have the ability to keep a whole lot of antique garments on hand in a way that would be appropriate for their long-term conserving. And I don't really have a place to display them carefully either. You can't really put an antique dress on any old mannequin. When you see them in museums and stuff, you don't know, but there's a lot of support and stuff underneath that mm -hmm. the curating team put together in order to keep that intact. You should also try and handle these things with gloves if at all possible. People are always saying that you should do it with antique books. Not necessary. Textiles, Definitely. You really should because really the oils in your hands can affect these fabrics, especially if you're talking about something like silk, which so easily shatters. So I don't really, I don't keep any clothes for myself. I'm kind of regretting not keeping a long crepe veil that I've had in my collection for a long time, seeing that it's so hard to find more, but it had been like in my closet on a hanger for many years. And I'm the kind of collector where I want to see and enjoy everything that I have. If I reach a point where I have so much that half of my collection is in storage and I'm not even looking at it, I feel like, let's just, let's just get rid of this. I'm not enjoying it. Mm -hmm. um, I do have morning jewelry. This is like a new piece that I just got. What um, is that that you're wearing? It's a jet morning necklace and on the central pendant is a set of three letters nested together, I-M-O, which stands for in memory of. So that's one of the indicators that this is morning jewelry and not just regular old black Victorian jewelry. So in terms of morning stuff, I keep things that I display, frequently framed memorials and hair works and things like that. And I limit my jewelry collection to pieces that I actually wear so that I don't go crazy accumulating. If someone were listening to this and 
they wanted to know more about the types of mourning items that might still be in their family. You're talking about jet jewelry mm -hmm. with certain symbolism on it, mm -hmm. hair work jewelry or hair work framed pieces. Yes. What else might they look for? I think I saw this beautiful sort of milky glass thing on your website of a hand. Yes. I'm not typically a milk glass person, but if it's done in motifs that I really like, then absolutely. And I really have a terrible penchant for any kind of Victorian decorative object with the motif of a lady's hand. And this was just a very popular design motif you see throughout the 19th century. Um, you see it on calling cards, in jewelry, in household items that ended up on the kitchen table, just about everywhere. They're not necessarily associated with mourning. It would be a rare example, like Queen Victoria had plaster casts taken of the hands of all of her children. And that became a trend that certain people followed in the 19th century also. So very, very occasionally you'll see like a plaster cast or a marble carving of somebody's hand and it will be inscribed as a memorial or kept as a remembrance of a particular person who died. You also might see souvenirs from the funeral. So shadow boxes that contain things like funeral flower arrangements or casket plates, casket ornaments, these things would have been removed. Like they, they were like put on just for the ceremony and then they were removed before the casket went to the ground. I get that question a lot when I have casket plates. There are certain people that are very concerned that I've gone to a cemetery and I have dug up someone's final resting place in order to make an $85 sale, which no, <laughs> they were removed before burial and they were kept as souvenirs by the family and frequently you find them in shadow boxes or frames or other things like that. Usually, if you have a mourning item, it's very clear from the symbolism that that's what you have. And it's very infrequently ambiguous, which is the same thing that I would say about post-mortem photography, as I'm sure that you're aware, having mm -hmm. to deal with you know, the constant, is this person dead? Nope, they're standing up and their eyes are open. Right. So it's not pretty, particularly back then. You know, what if it was August and all that you had was an undertaker who was like a day away and you had a cooling board with holes in the bottom of it to put the body on and then slabs of ice underneath. That's it's not pretty. You can tell pretty. from a photograph. It's not, they're not beautiful people in any way. One time I went to an antique shop. This is the, the one that got away and it was fairly early in my career and I went to an antique shop and, and it was a, it was a jewelry, like a pawn shoppy kind of thing. They had jewelry and people had sold it. And in the case was a black ring with an image of a person on it. And I went home, thought about it for two seconds and then went back to the store and it was gone. Uh. It was a funeral ring that I had let slip out of my, my hands. But what about funeral cards? those are the ones that we still have today, but in the 19th century, they look somewhat different. And I saw a lot of them on your, on your Instagram feed. Yes. So in the 19th century, 
you might have funeral invitations that you would send out, or you would have cards that you could take as a souvenir from that particular funeral. And on top of that, you had stationery that was designed for people who were in mourning. So most of these items have black edged paper, and that's how you can recognize it. The cards that I like best to collect are mostly from the 1860s through the 1870s, and they're very highly embossed and die cut with imagery like weeping billows, weeping figures, cherubs, tombstone, things of that nature. They're highly elaborate. And it's just incredibly impressive to me that they were able to achieve that level of detail with 19th century machinery. And these cards actually have a lot in common visually with the Valentines that I like to collect too, which are on highly embossed decorative lace paper and are usually from around the 1840s to 1860s. That's sort of like my sweet spot. Yeah, there's so many things out there. You mentioned that you are a collector. Is there anything, you said you only collect a few pieces of jewelry, you only collect a few things, but, but what exactly are you always looking for? I would say that I am very taken by anything Victorian that's under glass one way or the other. I recently bought a beautiful shadow box with cloth flowers inside. And within the same week I purchased another shadow box that had, I'm waiting to receive the item to see what it is. It's either cloth flowers or it's skeleton flowers and leaves, which um, that's a term that means natural specimens that have been artificially bleached with chemicals to remove all of their pigment. Mm -hmm. And they were used to make arrangements. Sometimes they were used for mourning, sometimes not. But it occurred to me, like, okay, we, we have kind of a lot of shadow boxes now. Like, this is getting a little bit ridiculous. I'm, I must have at least 15 that I can think of off the top of my head. And anything under glass domes as well. So, like, wax valentines or taxidermied birds. I don't know what it is about glass, but it speaks to me. And I'm very, very lucky that I've not broken any of it because I had not previously considered myself a particularly graceful woman, but I've managed not to break any of this stuff. So I guess we're doing okay. You have several examples on the mantle next to you. I want to thank you very much for being on the photo detective. I think you've given us some great information for things for people to look at that might be in their family collection that they don't actually know what they are and might not associate with Victorian mourning practices. If People do have questions about what's in their photos to ask a dealer that they trust or a historian that they trust because there's so much misinformation floating around having to do with post-mortem photography and morning photos in general. And I don't know, for some reason, everyone on these photo Facebook groups thinks that they're an expert, but there's no substitute for talking to a dealer who's lived with and handled these items every day for decades. So definitely. Or they could come to me, the photo detective. <laughs> or they could come to you. Yes, exactly. Definitely seek out an expert that you trust. Thank you so much for being on the photo detective. I will continue to follow you on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, especially. And I like looking at your website and seeing what pops up new, which is, I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you.
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media, leave me a rating and a review. And if you know of a friend or family member who's also interested in family photographs, share this episode with them too. See you next time. I'm thrilled to be offering something new. Photo Investigations. These collaborative one-on-one sessions look at your family photos. You and I meet to discuss your mystery images and find out how each clue and hint might contribute to your family history. And trust me, these images can reveal so much in your research. I have decades of experience in the photo, genealogy, and history industries. This is your chance to learn from me and discover the stories in your family images. You can find out more by going to MaureenTaylor.com and clicking on Family Photo Investigations.